0: here we go. Nice and
1: quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling.
0: Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set
1: and action.
2: I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard.
0: Making movies is hard.
2: Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Roussel.
0: I'm Liz Banishell.
2: This week, we have director-editor Jay Scheel on the show to talk about his documentary series, Curse Films, on Shudder, which came out on digital, DVD, and Blu-ray on August 18th, and season two was going to be hitting Shudder in the near future, so it was really great talking to Jay.
1: I, I just always look for those notes that are are revealing cracks in my own ideas or perspectives and force me to confront those ideas and, and articulate why I think it works for the episode or or doesn't. So being challenged by really good notes, I think, is a, a great thing, especially when it ends up turning into a, a better idea than you had.
2: He told us all about how he landed the job uh, directing Curse Films, the process on making the series and the difference between when he works on his own thing versus, you know, when he's working for hire. But, Liz. Do you you have something for us?
0: I mean, I might, but I think both of us have mail. My
1: breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. All
0: right, this week we have a brand new, spanking new iTunes review. How many times can I say new in one sentence? Brittany Guerin wrote that this is the best film podcast out, and she gave us five stars. Brittany's very kind. So Brittany wrote, I'm a screenwriter and filmmaker, and let me just say I have searched far and wide for a good, entertaining, and consistent film podcast. MMIH is everything I wanted and needed in film podcast. I love the new editions. It's also inspiring that Liz is a mother because so am I. Oh. Also, subscribe to their YouTube page. Yes, they are up on YouTube now. I'm so excited for more content. Might even support the Patreon when I get my coins up. This is a person we did not pay to write this, and it's as if, <laughs> as if <laughs> we did, because she's uh, promoted everything we wanted her to promote and said the nicest thing. So thank you very much, Brittany.
2: And at Think Sadie. Do you know what that is? I the figured that was like
0: her cool username, uh, okay. but I think, I think this Brittany friended me on Instagram and sent me a little message. And I think that was her username.
2: Uh, Okay. There you go. Awesome. Very cool. But well, thank you, Brittany.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Brittany. Um, If you want to be like Brittany, and follow her exact directions. You can um, support us at Patreon, www.patreon.com MMIH podcast. Give us a dollar, dollar, five dollars, whatever you'd like, whatever any support matters. You can also send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast and movies is hard.com if you like the show. It really is meaningful for you to re- leave a review and let us know how we're doing, what you like, what you don't like. You can leave a review on iTunes or any of the places you listen to podcasts on. And lastly, if you head over to our Instagram page, you click the link in our bio, you can head to our brand new uh YouTube page. And we have reached a hundred subscribers, so we are officially off and running and we would love to share some video content with you.
2: We have another very exciting thing. We've got another short film to talk about.
0: Get shorty. Yeah, yeah, boom, yeah.
2: Boom, boom. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. So this week we have a film by a listener, Charnstar Anderson called Lace. Let's just hear what Charnstar has to say.
3: The reason I decided to make this as a short rather than any other medium is mainly because this was kind of my first foray into straight drama. I work primarily in comedy. I did stand-up comedy for years. I'm far more comfortable in comedy or in genre and doing such a personal drama is very daunting for me very difficult for me to do, and so I decided, you know, I'll just, you know, dip my toe into it. I wouldn't, you know, go crazy with it, and at the same time, I also think that the message I'm trying to get across works better in a short format, because I don't want to spend an hour and a half just saying, hey guys, I'm normal too. (laughs) I kind of just want to get in and out with that message, and let people know that, you know, we're real. Why this story? Uh, I think it's probably very obvious that this story is very personal to me. I kind of based the uh, whole ending on it on a interaction I had when I was 18. It was kind of one of my first moments of clarity, which was I was working at a toy store uh, and one of my workmates, I noticed that she was wearing uh, pink lacy underwear while we we're working at a toy store, and just out of curiosity, I, I, I asked her about it, and initially, you know, she was very embarrassed, obviously, and slowly she started opening up, and she started telling me how it wasn't about people seeing it, it was about how it made her feel. And I don't think at the time she realized how formative that moment was to me, for me, because I was kind of like... I understand all too well. That kind of like changed my whole perspective on what was going on with me, and of course, it's 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 something that a lot of people don't know about. I think uh, even though we have comedians like Eddie Izzard or Andrew O'Neill out there who are putting themselves out there and letting them know that this is a normal thing. Uh, so many times, you know, we get confused with with uh, drag queens or you know. Transgender, and I don't want people to confuse me for transgender because trans people are real, trans people are valid Trans men are men and trans women are women, and I'm just some dickhead who looks great in heels So I kind of want to get rid of that stigmatization of the word transvestite because it's a very important word for me It's kind of a word that until I knew it was a thing I was lost. I, I didn't know what was happening with me, and the moment, you know, I stumbled upon people like Eddie Izzard, it was like, oh, I feel validated. I feel like I've found my people. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I want to do that for people as well. When it comes to the funds, uh, there were kind of no funds for this film. Everything was kind of done pro bono. Uh, I had just gotten out of film school so I had no money because I spent it all on my grad film. I, With my grad film I had two different crowdfunding campaigns and we raised way too much money and it was all insane so I didn't want to do any of that now I'm out. I wanted to get as much free stuff as I could so uh, I was working at the film school I was able to source all the equipment from there I was able to source crew from the students there because now they look up to me because I'm staff. Uh, I was an actor before I was a um, filmmaker so I was able to uh, source some of my friends from acting school and some people I had worked with prior and all of these things started coming together and it was something that I was able to do by myself uh, so that which is why I did so many of the roles I produced directed edited I was trying to just go you know what I I can do that that's free Anything I can do, that's free. Brilliant. Moving on. The one thing where where the budget kind of came in was the underwear. Uh, the underwear was the only... the underwear and catering. Don't want to confuse the two. That was where all the money went. Uh, I didn't want the actors to have to bring in their own underwear, so I bought them underwear. They got to take their, theirs home. Uh, Lydia was far happier about that than John, but, you know, I'm sure John loves it now. We'll see. He, he spent a whole film wearing it. He loves it. Before making the short, I was kind of just, I was kind of just, (laughs) I kind of made a rule for myself that now I was out of film school, I would be making at least one short film per year, just so I've always got that creative juices flowing. I'm never going stagnant. Uh, So it was kind of getting to the end of the year when this film uh, came along. So I was like, all right, the one thing I want out of it is the fact that I'll have a film this year, and maybe it'll get into festivals. The thing that actually kind of worked out really well in my favour that I genuinely wasn't expecting is that by writing a genre that I was so not used to, it made me work far more creatively. It's improved even my comedy scripts. I've written several scripts since then, and working in interpersonal drama the way I did with Lace kind of really works in those films as well, so... Sure, I haven't, like, blown up, and I don't think anyone takes me as a serious director yet, but on a personal level, I'm definitely improving, and I can see that, and other people can see that too. Now that it's out in the world, I feel, I hope, that it serves just to let people know that, you know, not only let other people know that transvestites are real, but hopefully it'll give someone the clarity that I needed when I was younger. I went through so much Gender confusion because I didn't understand that you know what maybe you can just wear it and it's nice It doesn't necessarily have to be a gender-based thing. It's just that I look really hot in heels and a dress So be it who am I to complain when it comes to the uh, Inspiration of the tone of the film. It's kind of interesting because it changed a lot through from when i wrote it to when we were actually shooting it there were actually a lot more jokes in the script which some that i, I cut the script some i cut on set like i noticed the way everything was going i'm like all oh, these don't actually work and then some i didn't even cut until the edit but one of the one of the things that really changed the visual tone of it uh, was the episode San junipero from black mirror i i knew that i wanted the film to feel very sexy. There's no better word for it. I wanted the film to feel sexy. And it wasn't until we saw San Junipero that we saw this romance and earnestness that I think we really needed. And that kind of changed the whole way it came about. Now, I, I, I lay all the acclaim on my DP's feet. Uh, Gabby Zacino. She, she, she blew me out of the park with what she was able to do with the lights to really set what we were going for and once that kind of like clicked in place everything kind of came together yeah that's everything
0: so Ulrich, you picked this one i'm putting you on the spot why why this one
2: well, I instantly like the style of it. It has a very distinct point of view. It also <laughs> kind of took me off guard because it's very intense. It's like very over the top with the music and the sound design, which is something that I actually like a lot. Um, you know, in movies, like if you watch my movies, like it, you'll see similar things. But yeah, so I like the style. I like that it was very, and it never let up. Like it was like pretty much like no, this is what this movie is. This is our tone. We're we're hit. It. We're going for it. Um, I also liked that it felt very personal. And then later I, I uh, learned that Sean Starr is uh, identifies as a transvestite. Um, so it is personal, obviously. And then I really liked the performances, too. I thought they did a really great job and it felt honest and, and like real. So those were the things that that really spoke to me. Um, what did you think, Liz?
0: Yeah, I mean, I love personal pieces in general. This one, I, I you know, I didn't know the backstory before watching it. So I kind of just judged it as self-encompassed piece of art and uh, though it was a little intense for me and I thought delved into a little bit of expositional dialogue I do appreciate a film that has to do with sexuality on the margins that has a happy ending. So I have to say, like, I really enjoyed that it took us a place that we've been millions of times before, like someone feeling vulnerable and scared about exposing something about themselves, sexual identity, and then it didn't punish that character. It really gave him exactly what he wanted, which um, I have to say did make me very happy. I just again want to say, like, making a movie is really hard. What Turnstar did was really difficult and very cool, and I commend Turnstar.
2: But yeah, but thank you, Turnstar, uh, for sharing your work with us, and I hope people dig it. You know, and I'm I'm kind of curious to hear what people think. So if you have thoughts on the film, please uh, email us or you know talk about it online. We'd love to hear more of, uh, you know, get more interaction around this this segment because I, I like we really enjoy doing this. But but I don't know, like we kind of want more engagement from the audience on these short films. So I don't know Maybe we need to do a better job of posting them or something.
0: Yeah. And if as always, if you want us to feature your short film, send us that email to podcast at making dot com. And um, we bring it up all the time. But poor Ulrich is creating a database of every short film we've been sent. <laughs> and we go to uh, we go to that database every time we record a show. So we're we're watching your stuff and we'd like to support you.
2: And we're getting some stuff that's, like, shot on iPhones, definitely looks like first-time filmmakers, or at least early in their, their career filmmakers. And, you know, we haven't really featured a lot of those, but I think I kind of want to, you know, and, like, include something that is clearly somebody who's working with less resources or, um, you know, maybe hasn't had that much experience. Like, I think it's interesting to, to showcase the, that work, too, you know? So I don't want it to all be the glossy you know, more experienced stuff. I want to I show a nice, you know, collection of, of work, you know. But I guess it's, uh, it's about time that we get to our talk with uh, Jay Cheel. Today we're joined by Jay Cheel, the director, editor, and writer of the uh, show Curse Films on Shudder. Welcome, Jay.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So, first question in our rapid-fire questions. Um, how many days did you guys shoot Chris Films?
1: Uh, I think it was about 34 days, maybe.
2: H- how many episodes?
1: When we first started, it was supposed to be three episodes with two films per episode. And after our first filming block, it was, things were going well. So, we expanded it to five episodes and decided to just give one film an entire episode. So... Uh, so yeah, that was for five half hour episodes.
0: This is, I don't know if this question is germane, but can you talk about the budget? What was the budget of the whole show?
1: I don't know if I can talk about the budget to be honest. I don't, I, I think I know what the budget it was. It was a, let's say it was a reasonably. No, it was, uh, you know, we, we, we did a lot with what we had and we decided, you know, there, this is the kind of show that I think you could. You could do it in a way where it's like, let's rent a warehouse and we'll just bring our subjects in like an assembly line and interview them with some abstract warehouse backgrounds. But we decided to, uh, we didn't want to do that. So we did a lot of traveling, visited people in their homes, and luckily Shutter was able to support that. So that's what I'll say. <laughs> As, as, as having
2: worked on a few documentaries, I can just put the numbers together in my head of what that means, you know, budget wise, how long did you work on the, the, the show from inception to it being released?
1: It was about a year. Yeah. Like that's, that's from pitching it. So shutter actually approached me and then I, I pitched my take on it. And, uh, that was in, I think May, 2017, maybe time is no longer means anything. To anyone anymore, I think so. Uh, so from that point to the show being finished, it was about a year. And then it, and then we waited uh, for the appropriate time to get it up on the service.
0: How big was the crew?
1: Small. It was, uh, we would travel with three people, myself, uh, Brian Robertson, my producer, and our cinematographer. We actually went through three cinematographers because of the length of the shoot. And then we would meet with sound people in our locations so I, I for documentaries, I like to try to keep a very small crew and keep it as intimate and casual as possible, especially when we're coming into people's homes and, and taking over. So it was, it was a four-person crew.
2: Side question. So when you're working with that small amount of crew, is it like you and your DP lighting together or does your DP just kind of handle the lighting or... Is it kind of like all hands on deck to like just do everything as a team?
1: Uh, they'll handle the lighting. I'll I'll give some uh, direction in terms of where like where we're going to shoot and what I'd like to see. And then as they're lighting it, I'm usually spending time with the subject and uh, I'm chatting and just warming them up a little bit to get to the point where we're ready, we're ready to shoot, which I think helps as well just to to keep it more conversational and casual unless it's someone like you know we interviewed richard donner and there wasn't a ton of chit chat before that there was some and you know which was amazing but (laughs) usually it's uh yeah the dp working that all out while i'm kind of hanging out with the subject very easy
2: all right now my real question out of all your projects uh how difficult was this one
1: I've I've made two documentary features previously which I did shoot myself and that crew was essentially me and occasionally a friend of mine who's not a film person so that that was a lot of difficult filming so compared to that it I would say it's I mean it, it maybe it doesn't sound that interesting but it was pretty easy <laughs> cuz it you know it, I'm a horror fan I'm a, a documentary fan I love filmmaking. So getting to essentially hang out with and chat with people who worked on some of my favorite films and talk to critics and academics about things that I'm interested in and and movies that we share a passion for, it's a pretty easy gig. I think that the tough part is in edit, when you have all the footage and you're putting it together and, and trying to make a, a narrative out of that material. That's, that's the challenge. But I like that challenge.
0: Let's talk a little bit about The Inception. You know, we're filmmakers and our podcast is mainly for filmmakers and film enthusiasts. And getting a gig to work with someone like Shutter and having them approach you is ideal. So can you talk a little bit about, was it your, you know, the prestige you garnered from your two documentaries, or how did they approach you, and how did you essentially negotiate the opportunity for yourself?
1: So I, uh, a few years previous to this, uh, a guy named Owen Shiflett reached out to me when I released my uh, feature documentary, How to Build a Time Machine, and at the time, Owen was working for AMC, and he was interested in the film, and we we started chatting and became friends, and eventually he ended up at Shudder. And when he was at Shutter, this idea uh, was presented to them. I, I believe uh, Robin Jones, who who was at Shutter, isn't any longer, but it was her concept, and she pitched this idea of these the, a show about cursed films. And Owen thought of me partly because of my documentary work, obviously, but I had also just done a short film called Twisted, a short documentary about local drive-in theater close to me that was hit by a tornado when Twister was playing and it's this big urban legend around here. And, and I looked at the where the truth lies in that story. Cause I had always heard about it and there it's the kind of thing, you know, someone who knows someone who was there and saw it happen. So uh, looking into that story and, you know, just the urban legend side of it and the idea of memory and investigating that on a, a deeper level, I think Owen saw that that was a, a good fit for Cursed Films. He asked me if I'd be interested, and I basically pitched back to them what my take would be on the series. And the way we kind of summed that up and would always refer to it, is just the idea of exploring the tension between the rational and irrational and trying to figure out why we're so fascinated by these Cursed Legends.
0: So there was no representation in the middle. It really was a direct relationship between you and AMC. That's really yeah. interesting.
2: It, it's pretty amazing because I was looking at your, uh, you know, IMDb before the interview and it's like, yeah, the, the, that Twister documentary is like the perfect like portfolio piece to get the Cursed Films job. It's like, yeah. oh, that that makes total sense, you know, and so it's it's really interesting how like things like that have just happen and you are just the right person for the job and you happen to have that that connection to them, you know, and it just all worked out. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's great when that that uh, that happens. And it seems to be a thing with a lot of my work. There's these themes that rise to the surface. And not by any sort of conscious sort of decision-making am my exploring these similar ideas, but it just seems to happen. Uh, and I guess part of it is just what I'm maybe naturally attracted to or curious about. And um, I, I definitely have an interest in obsessives, People who are obsessed about certain things or passionate about certain things. And, and you know, of course, the, the connection, as you said, between Twisted and Cursed Films is a very obvious one. And even when I was presented with the chance to pitch on it, I felt pretty good going into the pitch because uh, I had that piece to kind of give an idea of how I would handle the, the Cursed Films episodes.
0: Having worked in you know the feature documentary world where you said like it was essentially your project like you had a friend come on and I assume something maybe somewhat similar with your short what was it like to get studio notes and have to kind of share that vision on a weekly basis with with this team?
1: I mean I it's it's always an interesting challenge uh, especially when you're editing your own work. You know, people always say you shouldn't edit your own stuff. And I think that's a valid perspective, but there are some benefits. And, you know, when I'm shooting, I, I, I've worked as an editor on other projects where I've, I've just been an editor and worked with other directors. and And that's always been a very valuable experience in terms of my own storytelling and filmmaking. So even in those cases, I would get to see how that director, a a Canadian filmmaker named Kevin McMahon would handle notes. And that was always a great experience watching that process because, you know, on my two features, there were notes, but they were, they were minimal. And I had a lot of control over it, but I have done some other work as well for, for Vice and, and um, you know, some other kind of more jobs, you know, that, that I would have to negotiate, or uh, the, the sort of noting process. But this is definitely a project that was a lot more of a. Even though it was a job, it's a. It, it became a passion project as well, and it's something that I'm very proud of. And and the noting process. I, I, kind, I like it. it can be stressful and it can be tough to compromise certain ideas or certain elements of your vision to make sure that everyone's happy and I'm always aware of what we're like who we're making this for, what what kind of service it is, um, ultimately what's right for the, the project and, and the intent of the project and I, I just always look for those notes that are are Revealing cracks in my own ideas or perspectives, and force me to confront those ideas and, and articulate why I think it works for the episode or or doesn't. So, being challenged by really good notes, I think, is a, a great thing, especially when it ends up turning into a, a better idea than you had, um, and, and it works for the show. But of course, there's always those notes that you don't necessarily agree with, and deciding when to which battles to fight and which ones to, you know, uh, just kind of let go of in order to retain something else that might be more important for you, I think is an important skill. And just not being overly uh, precious about things unless you really feel that it's important and you can articulate why it's important. If it is that important, then you should be able to make the case why it should be kept. Otherwise, you know, just talking through it, uh, I think it reveals very quickly which elements might need to be cut. If that makes sense, so and the other thing be- I'll say, being a director and editor in the noting process, the one bad thing is it reduces two potential voices arguing for something down to one. <laughs> so, you know, you you could have a partner there fighting for something, and and you're really just the one person, and it always comes back to you. You're too close to the material, and
2: right, (laughs) yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm editing my own feature right now, and um, some of my producers, investors give me that note on the on a daily basis. Yeah, too close, but I'm like no, but I'm right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it's true. But I mean, I, I'd like to think I can kind of, I can pull myself back a little bit and be a little objective, and, and I, I mean, the best thing I'm sure you'll agree is, uh. Taking that cut and sitting some people down, some friends or whoever, and watching it. and if there's anything you're unsure about when you're watching it with other people, you will feel that you know <laughs> like when it's not working, you can sense it in the room. They don't even have to say anything. you just sense it and it's like okay that I feel like that didn't work. So being open to those changes I think is important
2: so so let's get back to the process a little bit. so like you 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 pitch for the show, you win the show. Then, then what happens, like, do you get to pick the movies that you focus on? Like, did they have a structure that you had to work within or were you kind of allowed to just sort of do your own thing with this concept once you were brought on?
1: The selection of the films was kind of a, a collaborative thing. We, they had a list of movies that they wanted. They had a long list and then we started eliminating. And I had a couple of suggestions that weren't on their list. And ultimately, I think we, we all agreed on pretty much all of them. I suggested one. I think I suggested Twilight Zone, the movie.
0: Oh, that's um, the best one.
1: Yeah. Sorry. And, they, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they agreed. So, But like I said, the, the, the initial shoot was for three episodes with two films per episode. So there, there was an additional film that ended up being cut from the, the final
0: is it season two? Like, or can you say what it is?
1: Potentially season two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not allowed to say, but I can I can say that it's potentially season two. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. That that's ultimately. I think the the first season it feels very much like almost a greatest hits of um, what people usually the films they usually talk about when discussing this subject, and also having enough of a variety where we could start at a place where it might be a little more playful but then there's a bit of an arc so that by the time we get to the end of the series and we're at twilight zone the movie where the series has kind of shifted its perspective a little bit so that was something we we wanted to be aware of as well and, and making sure that we're not doing two films back to back that might feel very similar i wanted each episode to feel like a different essentially document short documentary on each film
0: Speaking of the Twilight Zone episode, you used the footage of the, or somehow you tracked on the footage of the amazing, you know, Arik, I'm sure you've heard the story of the helicopter incident and the two children in the, it's the Vietnam, it's the Vietnam segment, right? That's set in Vietnam? Yeah. We don't need to go into it, but I'm curious, like I had never seen that footage before. It was like a shock to see it. Was that um, a legal battle that you had to win or was it actually relatively easy to archive, you know, um, I mean, it, it... achieve that archival win?
1: It's easy to find. Uh, the, the real discussion was whether like whether to include it and what to include. I mean the the scene was filmed with, I think five cameras. so there's multiple angles and the one we used is the furthest away from what happened there are angles that are like medium shots to medium close-ups of them and it's horrendous and yeah i mean it wasn't a decision that was made lightly and and ultimately felt like it was um there's also this this idea surrounding this footage uh, that it's it has this sort of mystique surrounding it like the the footage that nobody's ever seen and how did you find it and and where did it come from and um, as though like we've delivered some exclusive, you know, reveal. But the the footage was widely a- available and and uh, broadcast on the nightly news when this trial was taking place. So there's they they showed the accident in 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 full. I mean, there's a, a part in the sort of news montage in that episode where you see the accident playing out again on the news, and I cut away before you know the impact, but. They showed the impact on that news broadcast, so it it wasn 't something that was kind of buried um, it It was part of the trial, and for that reason is accessible it 's just a matter of you know the the ramifications of using that footage uh, in terms of uh, you know introducing that into this episode and and why, why you would choose to do that. And it, I, I think with every episode, my, my kind of, the, the way I approached it was to allow the subjects to dictate the tone. So the, the Omen episode is a lot more playful. And part of that is because all of the subjects are very playful. Like Richard Donner and Mace Newfeld both talk about everything that happened on the Omen in a playful way. And so that makes me think, okay, well, then we'll we'll let this exist in that sort of form. Richard Sawyer, who worked on Twilight Zone, the movie, and was there when the accident happened, is devastated, obviously, by what took place. And is that he, the
0: production designer who was yeah. talking about how his life was about to culminate with the film? Oh, my
1: God. Yeah, so his, his I just kind of used his interview to dictate a lot of the choices that we made uh, for that episode. And it, it felt like it just, his story was um, when he tells it, he's very much in the moment. He's visualizing it. He's there. He's back uh, when he's talking about it and, and seeing it happen in front of him. And it just felt like it, it was something that, that, that we sh- should use to accompany what he went through. And also, by the end of the series, to get to a point where we suggest that, you know, the, Phil Nobile talks about this idea of curses kind of disappearing because of self-documentation and everything is filmed nowadays and it doesn't leave much room for this idea of a curse. And I think that's kind of true because all of these stories that we talked about leading up to the Twilight Zone movie, I feel like if there was footage of all of those things then people might not be sharing those stories in the way that they do uh, it would feel a lot more real and having that footage and that footage having been broadcast over the news and becoming uh, a a little bit of a story I think robs the 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 that event of that that supernatural power um, because it just exposes it for what it was which was a uh, a uh, massive failure in protecting those kids and Vic Morrow. It, and when you see the the multiple angles, it makes even less sense. Like talking about movies being hard to make, they're very hard to make. And this shows that, you know, it's very easy to just get caught up in, you know, whether it's it's the filmmaker's ego uh, wanting to have things bigger and better and more real or having a last night of filming and wanting to get as much in the can as you possibly can uh, at the lowest cost. And in that scenario, they were shooting with five cameras, this giant stunt that they wanted to capture all at once from multiple angles. And when you look at the angles, the one in the show is so far away that they're, they're so tiny. You can't tell that that's Vic Morrow. It could have been a stunt double and the kids could have been dolls. And the angle that's close is so close that you can't see the helicopter. So oh, uh... they could have done it without the helicopter. So it really was just a matter of trying to get it all in one and putting these people in this dangerous position that they in no way had to be put in. And they were just, you know, it was essentially the hubris of the filmmaker thinking that, you know, bigger and better. And John Landis talking about when they did the test explosions, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, that, that was the attitude and they pay the price for that. So, so ultimately when you get to the end of the show, I mean, as kind of maybe cheesy as it sounds, it turns the, the the, away from the supernatural and you end up leaving with this idea that the people who worked on that film, the the curse that they have to live with is having that memory uh, and being involved with that production. So yeah, it, it was a very intentional arc throughout those five episodes
0: you have to forgive me I never watch the films the people that I we talk to <laughs> and I've seen all episodes of cursed, cursed oh, good. Films. Good. so like this is like my one time where I like actually have specific yeah. questions <laughs> about episodes and I'm like taking over so I want to make sure that Ulrich but, like Ulrich please jump in okay so well, I, you know, I,
2: I haven't seen the show because I don't have shutter so um
1: well the, the good thing is it's coming out on blu-ray August 18th and, and digitally so so it will be available to people who don't subscribe to Shutter, And the good thing about that is, you know, I, 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 I'm a big horror fan as you know, you can see and uh, <laughs> a big genre fan, but I am documentaries are a very important part of my, not only my life, but my, you know, my formative cinematic experience. And I, I work in documentaries. So it wasn't just about making a show that lists out all of these crazy things that happen on the sets of horror films it was about trying to make a series that that works as a proper documentary where we're attempting to use that concept of a cursed film as the opportunity to discuss other things about the human condition and you know ideas of magical thinking and and coincidences and pattern seeking and why we are so fascinated by, about the, or by these stories and why the ones we're fascinated seem to usually come from horror film sets so what does that mean what does it say about horror films in general, and and how we uh, interact with them, and what they mean to us? So, so you know, it, it's I the the goal was to make a series that that kind of elevates beyond you know the E! true Hollywood story, sort of spooky events on a film set. There is that there, but we we attempt to get a, a little um, past that uh, and dig a little deeper. That was also a great experience.
0: I'm also dying to know. You have um I think it's the last episode where someone puts a curse on a movie. And I'm sure every single person has asked you this, but can you say what movie was cursed?
1: I wanted to put the movie in the episode. I, I, that was a note that I lost <laughs> the battle on. The compromise was at the after the credits, he you see him do the curse, and it's bleeped out which film it is. so i can't I guess I can't say what the movie is, but i I can say, <laughs> that the movie is currently postponed
2: oh, oh.
0: <laughs> is it wonder woman wait hold on
1: <laughs> it, it is not no. wonder woman
0: okay <laughs> i will like say that's my that. only that's my heart um <laughs> and it could um, be a good number of films which i won't yeah yeah press you on <laughs>
1: yeah
2: top gun 2 I mean,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah unfortunately night. all these other films he he cursed one specific film and all of these other films were the collateral damage of him <laughs> cursing the wand so yeah
0: amazing well talking about the pandemic what are you how are you surviving it work-wise like are you um i know it's different for documentary um as well it's like i'll reckon our mainly fiction filmmakers but are you working on a bunch of projects right now are you in the are you in post or are you is there a moratorium for you as well
1: so I mean luckily I I had just started work on a, a doc series that I I can't really say much about it just because it's I'm not directing it. I was working as a writer and and story producer, which is an interesting experience for me because usually I'm directing. So it was it was um great to kind of just have this other perspective and really focus in on giving notes about story and using that experience to enrich my own understanding of telling a good story. So that was I've I've been working on that since last November up until this summer. I'm now kind of only on it like once a day. But I was lucky enough to be regularly employed with that gig and, and be able to do it from home. Once we moved to um, to working from home. And now uh, we're just starting uh, pre-production on season two of Cursed Films. So we're doing five more episodes. And of course, with the pandemic, we will be facing all of the challenges that everyone will be facing with going into people's homes to interview them about these things. And, and some of the people we're talking to are older people that are higher risk uh, people. So that will be something, even that, it's we're now talking about backloading the production with interviews with people who are more who are higher risk and just hoping that by the time we get to the end of the production it might make more sense Um, but we are shooting internationally this time as well so we're actually going overseas first uh, while the states you know hopefully clears up a little bit and then we will reevaluate when we get back and and the goal is to go film as much as we can uh, i 'm in canada so we 're going to film up here a bit and then film overseas come back i 'll probably i 'm going to cut the show again so i 'll be cutting while we 're waiting for our you know window to get into the states when that makes sense, and then pick up from there
2: yeah I mean you know besides having to come in from a different country i 'm sure that 's not the easiest thing to do but with a three person crew, I mean, come on, <laughs> that's way, that's way easier than like what anyone else has to deal with, like on a bigger set with like a crew of whatever, 20, 25, a hundred, whatever, you know, like yeah, we're, three we're lucky. is manageable.
1: <laughs> the, the only thing that it might change is we might ha- we might end up bringing a sound person with us so that we can keep track of the, the testing, COVID testing. Cause usually we would, we would meet someone in our locations and and sometimes that does not work out. But right. <laughs> rather than, you know, just trusting that they will get their test done and uh, having a little control over that. And, and if anything, for the sake of the subjects that were uh, that are allowing us to come into their homes uh, and potentially uh, one thing we might do is get PAs in the locations to handle things like, you know, the wiping down of gear and, and, you know, whatever else. So those are all protocols that are being worked out by, by the producers. And we're obviously going to keep it as safe as possible.
2: So here's kind of an off the wall question. So like, you know, you, you make a lot of documentaries. You're also a huge horror fan. Do you have any interest or excitement or ambitions to, you know, do your own like narrative horror film one day?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I don't ever want to stop making documentaries, but I would love to get a chance to make some uh, genre, scripted genre features. We are working, it's not a horror film, but we're currently raising the money for a, a feature doc about John Teeter who is a supposed time traveler who posted online in the year 2000 and Told this great story about being from the year twenty thirty six and going back to nineteen seventy five to get an IBM fifty one hundred computer because it has uh, this code language that they needed to rebuild the American infrastructure.
2: I remember this. I, I remember this story. <laughs> yeah.
1: So we're we're um, we're working right now on on getting that financed, and we're we're coming along quite well, and that will be literally like a. a a documentary with a science fiction film on top of it, with actors and everything, and and will kind of be a, a true hybrid. That for me is exciting because it will work as the the merging of those two worlds, and and hopefully um, suggest my my uh, ability to handle scripted filmmaking and, and genre filmmaking. And it will just also work as a great storytelling uh, conceit for this particular subject. So, uh, so yeah, that's something that I'm excited about and, and eventually would like to just transition that into a full out um, scripted, whether it's horror film or thriller or whatever, if you think thriller is a genre, whatever. <laughs>
2: We should talk about that. Is thriller a genre? <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole show. I'm a little taken
0: aback because it, the way you said that the fiction, the the fiction side of the hybrid documentary, uh, will show your capability in fiction. But and I understand that Canadian features are financed in a different system than than you know U S American films are, but. Why not just fundraise for the fiction film that you want to make? What is it part of that system of trying to have a sample in order to get money, or is it because you want a stepping stone yourself?
1: I mean, it's not necessarily a strategic. It's it's accidentally strategic. I I feel like the story this story is better told as a documentary, Um just because it's so. I mean, the John for people who don't know the John Teeter Teeter story, it feels like a greatest hits of a lot of different time travel. Like there's a little Terminator, a little back to the future, a little time cop. And that on its, on its face is not that interesting because if you just made a scripted feature based off of that, you're really just making another time travel movie that, you know, you might be able to say based on or inspired by a true story at the beginning or something. I I think it's much more interesting to um, look at how, there are people that were, were pulled into that story and, and uh, engaged with it in a very real way to the point of them actually sort of course correcting elements of their lives to prepare for the things that John Teeter warned about and what that means. Like, you know, why, why someone would put so much faith in a faceless voice on the other end of an internet message board. And the more it's funny because, you know, I've been trying to get this film made for a while and it's always the the challenge, as I'm sure you guys know with pitching is, you know, that question that always comes up. Why tell this story now? And it it's, you know, the, the stock question, but it's very it's it it's making more and more sense why we should be telling that story now, because first off on the surface, John Teeter's predictions or his version of the future. Seems to be kind of weirdly aligning a little bit. You know, he talked about a potential second American Civil War as the result of a controversial presidential election. So you can imagine why some followers might be like, "Okay, it's coming, it's coming." And while we didn't, we didn't have a surprise nuclear strike by the Russians in 2015. You can. The great thing about time travel is you can always say, "Well, John was here and he." he affected our timeline and simply delayed it. <laughs> or you know, like, so it's, it's a very, I think it's a very relevant story right now in terms of generally the ideas of fake news and putting your faith and trust into uh, people who might not have your best interests uh, you know, in mind. Um, so there, there's, there are some interesting elements that are coming to the surface that are making the project that much more exciting. And, and the, 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 narrative, like science fiction thing on top of it is, is kind of, it's not, it's also not strategic in that, you know, I just want to make this to show that I can do it. And I, I, I don't refer to them as recreations either. Cause it's also not just, you know, wanting to have some visuals to go along with talking heads to break things up. It's, it's the fan, it's the realization of this fantasy of being caught up in this conspiracy theory and, imagining yourself in the middle of a a story that you might be the most important character in. And, you know, who would you have play yourself if that was turned into a Hollywood movie? You know, this, this is a very common sort of conspiratorial mindset that I have access to this information that could change everything. And now I need to bring it to the world and warn everybody that this is coming. And that's, you know, very much, it feels very fantastic. And it feels like it could be informed quite a bit by the movies that those people have watched and their own imaginations, you know?
2: What happened with the John Teeter character? Was it like no one ever could track him down? It was just a voice on the internet? Or like, was he actually a real person that people met? Like, what? what's the the background?
1: There are theories. I mean, part of the reason why it's, it's lasted is because people haven't been able to officially point a finger at any one person as being the author of this hoax if you think it's a hoax um but there are some people that are considered by skeptics to be potential authors of the John Teeter story and we'll be interviewing some of those people as well so and and the film isn't really going to be any sort of investigative you know we're it's not like we're aiming to get behind the story and figure out who who created this if that comes out that's fine you know i i am more than happy to document someone else's journey to try to figure that out it's more just about how people have been interfacing with this this early version of an internet viral um phenomenon and it kind of reveals how i guess more savvy we might be or uh, or you would think we are at this point with having the internet around for this long and, you know, being able to recognize fake videos or fake stories. But, but then again, you know, now deep fakes are coming out and, right. and again, fake this idea of fake news and, and it's, it's a really blurry line. So there's going to be some interesting themes running through sub, subtextual themes running through what on its surface will feel like a quirky hybrid science fiction documentary. Yeah. Totally.
0: Well, I think we've come to our final five questions Uh, and these are more of like a long view of your, you and your career. So the first question is what's the first film you've ever made and how do you feel about it now?
1: Okay. I'm not going to go back to my high eight days of like (laughs) GI Joes outside in the backyard, but uh, my first, my first feature was a, a documentary called Beauty Day, which I made about someone local to me, again, uh, a guy who, his name's Ralph Zavadil, he did a show on cable access called Captain Video. And it's kind of like a Canadian version of Jackass, but it came out five years before Jackass. So the initial intent was just to show that there's this proto Jackass in Canada, but his story just was richer and richer. And as a character and a person, um, I got to know him quite well, and I still am quite close with him. And that experience was amazing. I mean, it was just, I used to watch a show when I was a kid and we would trade VHS tapes of, you know, Captain video clips. So to then come around and, you know, be making this documentary about him was kind of surreal. And yeah, it was my first real experience with making uh, a film about someone else and having them trust that I would... Do that justice.
2: What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
1: I don't know. They, I mean, I, I don't think there's any like <laughs> line of some magical line that was like, "Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense." I I think it was just more spending time. I think working as an editor has has been very valuable, and not just cutting my own stuff, but cutting other people's work, and you know, seeing why they're making the choices they're making and how they're fighting for their creative choices and, and being an advocate for them and also offering your own perspective and opinions and seeing how they uh, manage that. I, I think that's been extremely valuable in terms of just thinking about storytelling. It's kind of a, not exactly an answer maybe you're looking for, but just spending time is. An, I think everyone should edit. Cause it's a very, especially docs, doc, edit, editing documentaries, is a whole different uh, challenge because you're finding quite often the narrative in the the cutting room, so it's very valuable.
0: Uh, do you have a goal as a filmmaker, like um, whether it's numeric or emotional or psychological?
1: I guess just the wanting to make a, 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 a scripted genre film and have something under my belt that's like, okay, this is this is uh, something I'm hopefully good at and passionate about along with my documentaries but I I mean in terms of goals it feels like and I'm sure a lot of people feel this as well every time you set a goal and you achieve it it's never enough and your goals always keep moving forward and are continually out of reach. So whatever goal I might have, it, it will always be out of reach and I will never be satisfied if I meet it.
2: <laughs> if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself?
1: I, another thing that probably a lot of people think is just trying to get started a little bit earlier. And, you know, the 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 tough thing of transitioning from wanting to be a filmmaker and thinking about it as some unachievable you know fantasy in a way but then once you actually start doing the work uh, i think some of that is is the reality uh sets in that okay it, it's it's not unachievable there are there are certainly levels to it but you know now that i'm i'm uh working regularly uh directing and i know a lot of people who work in the film industry it's just a very real uh, achievable thing it's certainly not easy there's a lot of luck and um like the twisted thing you know the the idea of having done that leading to cursed it it feels like you need a lot of there's a lot of synchronicity and luck but keeping i i was always kind of keeping myself busy with making my own stuff so that that was never a thing i think it was just the idea of transitioning from that being a pipe dream to actively pursuing it to try to get going a little bit earlier
0: finally is making movies hard
1: it is definitely hard. Some are, are harder than others. As I said, Cursed Films was kind of an easy gig because it it just sort of perfectly aligned with my sensibilities. But I have worked on things that have been not only difficult creatively uh, and, you know, in the note, pr- noting process, um, but also difficult in terms of you know like shooting 9 days and then hearing that the hard drive got a virus and all of the 9 days of footage is gone <laughs> you know that's a whole other level of difficulty talk about cursed films i mean <laughs> that that should have gotten <laughs> so yeah the, it's definitely hard but it's i think it's a good type of of difficult it's uh it's challenging but it's always it's always presenting different challenges that you have to overcome. And because you're working constantly on new projects with new people, it's always exciting. So I'm more than happy to face the difficulty of filmmaking. It's certainly not as hard as probably 95% of the jobs out there that people are doing that I just could not handle.
0: It's not like chainsaw repairman or something. Like
1: Chainsaw repairman, uh, brain surgeon, of course, sure, right. uh, architect, whatever. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I love it. It's it's the best. I love that
2: chainsaw r- repairman and surgeon are right next to each other. Yeah, That's, yeah.
0: That was a- that was great. <laughs> it's, it's very
2: similar. <laughs> All right, Jay. So where should people go to find out more about you, to watch cursed films? Where should people head?
1: Well, uh, for Cursed Films, you can head to Shutter uh, and, and subscribe there. As I mentioned, it's going to be coming out on Blu-ray and uh, digitally on August 18th. So I guess head to Walmart and wear a mask <laughs> and um, don't get punched in the face by someone not wearing a mask. And for me personally, uh, you can find me, uh, I mean, I'm on Instagram at j.chiel where you know i've posted pictures from behind the scenes photos from the various shoots and i do a podcast called filmjunk.com which is we're pretty certain the longest running film podcast on the internet we started january 2005 and have been ah. going ever since yeah we've we've uh, i do it with a couple friends of mine and we have a lot of fun with it so if you want to hear this uh, monotone you know, dull voice <laughs> for hours on end, head over there.
2: <laughs> Amazing. Wow, Jay, thanks so much, man.
0: All right, thank you for listening. Thanks to Jay Cheel and to Priscilla Rios from KWPR for making this interview happen. Check out our website, MakingMoviesIsHard.com. You can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at MakingMoviesIsHard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH podcast. I am Liz Minichol on Twitter and Liz Minichol Film on Instagram. Ulrich, oh, where are you? I
2: am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm all over Facebook, so you can find me there.
0: Please, if you like the show, tell a friend that's really meaningful to us to grow our audience and for people, for more and more people to be a part of our community. Help us get the word out, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And finally, thanks to our producers, Greg Holtzman, Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Colby Crow, the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we'll talk to you all next week. Blah 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 blah. Oh, I want to make movies, blah 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 blah. <laughs> um <laughs> so